Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello folks, this is Chris, your host, and this is the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a longish chat with Vinny Tortorich, America's angriest trainer, about his new book, Fitness Confidential. In section one, I'll talk about Strengths Finder 2.0 and what we can learn from these types of exercises. In section two, I'll talk about tapering. I was out in Chicago last week at a conference, and it was, coincidentally, my birthday, and I had dinner with old friend Ray King and listener Royce, and I came home Friday night, turned around, went back out to the airport Saturday morning, and flew to Fort Myers, and I spent the weekend with the Zen Runner in the Zen Condo, and ran the Fort Myers Marathon on Sunday. Things did not go well for me at the race. I thought I was in a good position to race, but... I knew early that it wasn't my day. My heart rate was redlining and I felt like I was running in cement. I'll have to have a conversation with the coach about what the hell is going on and see if I can come up with a strategy. He'll probably tell me I'm a dumbass for trying to run a marathon a month and race well. But hey, it's on the edges where we learn about ourselves, yeah? On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Strengths Finder 2.0 Lifelong learning includes learning about you. I recently read a book and took the assessment for a methodology called Strengths Finder, all one word, 2.0, the number. And I make it a practice to continually learn and especially continually learn about myself. There are a number of these social psychology type methodologies available that they try to organize the messiness of the soft topics around people and behaviors. And the best ones give you unique insight into yourself and others by providing a different cohesive lens on behavior. This meshes nicely into self-improvement projects and also may give you some insight into your life purpose and how to align with that. There are many of these methodologies, some better than others, and Strengths Finder is a useful one because of the lens that it chooses. What I really enjoy and appreciate about these methodologies, and I have probably learned a half a dozen or so, is that moment when a light bulb goes off, and a particular interpersonal anomaly becomes obviously explained by the tension between your behaviors and someone else's. Strengths Finder starts with the assumption that we have inherent strengths, and by definition weaknesses. It walks you through examples of attitudes and behaviors that help you qualify what your strengths are and what the strengths of others may be. There are 36 discrete strengths that these folks have built 
through their research, and there's an explanation of each. There is a companion questionnaire that you take, and it spits out your top five strengths. What I like about this methodology is that it focuses entirely on strengths. It makes the point that we waste a lot of time and energy trying to change our weaknesses into strengths. You should understand the hand you've been dealt and figure out how to make the most of your strengths, whatever they are, or you're going to be a miserable round peg in a square hole. It's also a bit of an ego stroke because no matter what your top five are, it's okay. It's positive. You're a good and worthy individual because you have those strengths. Let's not worry so much about those weaknesses. At at times it reads like a cross between a high school guidance counselor and a daily horoscope, but if you look beyond the weaknesses, you can pull out some nuggets. The major weakness I find in these types of methodologies is that they attempt to make binary weighting on multidimensional spectrums. What I mean is they want to define you as either A or B, and people are more complex than that. While taking the survey, I was often stuck because both answers sounded good to me. For example, something like on one end it would say, you'd rather stay home and play a game on the computer, versus on the other end, you'd rather go out for drinks with friends. I like both those. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. In reality, that points out one of my strengths, which is that I'm in the middle of the spectrum for most of these methodologies, and that makes me very versatile. My point is that you have to remember the shades of gray in these things. The other caution I would have for you is don't take the survey, then turn around and shoot the results out to your boss and all your friends. Give it a couple of days to percolate and figure out why they would care. Otherwise, you fall victim to what I call the airplane magazine syndrome. That's when your CEO reads an article in an onboard magazine and is so besotted he or she changes the company strategy on Monday morning and looks like a total bozo to the whole company. Now, since I know you're dying to know, here are my top five strengths. Strategic, input, ideation, communication, learner. What were my light bulb over the head insights from this? Well, first, what was not a surprise to me were strengths two through four. Clearly, I'm that guy who would read a book, take the survey, and then synthesize it into a blog post for you. Duh. But the strategy one was an interesting topic for me. And I'll read you the definition of what they call strategy. It's a bit long, so bear with me. Driven by your talents, you may feel wonderful when people value your innovative ideas. Perhaps you help them envision what can be accomplished in the coming months, years, or decades. Because of your strengths, you select the right combination of words to convey your ideas or feelings. In the middle of discussions, your vocabulary <laughs> provides you with a precise phrases and terminology. You probably express yourself with ease and grace. Chances are good that you might generate certain types of ideas quickly. And it goes on and on. But... <laughs> it's just funny. Besides making me feel like a big old stud, they nailed a bunch of my effective personal and interpersonal behaviors. In the detail, they talk about my ability to see patterns and connect things in a way people without this strength cannot. And essentially, I can see around corners by projecting the patterns into the future, and this comes in handy in business. 
Sometimes this gets me in trouble, too, because if you're always thinking a couple steps into the future, people can steal your bacon in the here and now. Bottom line, this was a fun and interesting exercise, well worth the 25 bucks or so and the hour or two I spent on it. It gave me some insights, and it was oddly encouraging. For all its faults, I think the methodology is worth a swing. Just be careful not to get too wrapped up in the lens because it's just a lens and the real world is infinitely more complex. Remember, there are always shades of gray. No, not that kind. Get your mind out of the gutter. Let me know what you think. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. So, Vinny, give us the uh, the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Vinny Tortorich. I've been in the fitness business for, I guess, 32 or 33 years now. Um, I've been a, a personal trainer that whole time. Uh, I have a degree uh, from Tulane University in the health and fitness field. I worked at Newman School back in the day. I, I started off uh, as a coach. And I coached at the school that had two NFL MVP quarterbacks come out of the school, uh, two of the Manning kids, Cooper Manning and, uh, and Peyton. Eli was too young, uh, back, mm. you know, he wasn't up there in, in the high school ranks yet. Um, and then I had nothing to do with either of, or any of the Manning kids' careers, by the way. Yeah. But that's the, the level of coaching I was doing. That, that's what I was trying to get at. And I uh, moved out to Hollywood. I've been uh, here in the Hollywood community for 23 years working with celebs. And I've kept myself pretty quiet the whole time. I uh, never wanted any heat around me because whenever these celebs go off the deep end, you always hear, well, it was a, a source close to the person. That source is always a masseuse, a cook, or a trainer. Yeah. And uh, because I was in some uh, pretty heady homes and still am, I never wanted to be a part of that. But after I wrote the book, Fitness Confidential, uh, my partner in crime, Dean Laurie, who's a Hollywood producer, said, pal, you need to go out and let people figure out who you are. And um, yeah. since I did a radio show back in New Orleans in the 80s, I knew how to do this. I knew how to talk on a mic. Yeah. So you're from deepest, darkest Louisiana there, and, and you don't sound it at all. Yeah. People always say, wait, you're from the South, but you sound like you have a Bronx accent. Yeah. I, I grew up in the, in the swamp, um, and this, you know, some people, unless you have the Cajun accent, the other accent you have, because down there, there is no southern twang like you see in Texas and, you know, when, in Georgia and all that. You know, it's more of a, you know, uh, almost like a Bronxy accent for more of the upper class people, almost a falcon leghorn type of thing. And then when you get to New Orleans, there's a real, you know, I lived in New Orleans for 10 years. And I went to Tulane, where most of the kids there came from Long Island. So between dating girls, you know, girls from Long Island and living in New Orleans, you know, where you pick up that Bronxy kind of New Orleans accent. I mean, when you when you listen to me talk, think of Harry Connick Jr. And you get the same kind of accent. Yeah, I remember um, when I was a kid, I went to uh, wrestling camp one time and there was a bunch of kids there from... Uh, from either Louisiana or Mississippi, and uh, they get pissed at me because I had no idea what they were talking about. They could talk right at me. I had no idea what they were saying. 
well, you from know, New England. I, I was um, when I first got to Tulane, all of the kids from you know I was from the the swamp, and I literally spoke with a Cajun accent, and they would just say to me, "Just speak, just just say anything." And I would be so embarrassed and so upset by it. And, you know, I, I would always almost want to cry. I mean, it was, it was like, do I sound like that much of an idiot? And I'll never forget. I was one of, I was there on a football scholarship and the professors didn't really like the football players because they felt like we were taking up good space that the other kids should have. Uh, what they didn't realize was, was that I came from an academic family. And even though I spoke like a Cajun, I wrote in a more sophisticated manner. And I had a professor call me in because I had to write like a, a three or five thousand page essay for this um, English lit class. And it was my freshman year. And he called me in and he said, well, Mr. Tortorich, I think we could get you out of here for uh, cheating and plagiarism. And I said in my Cajun voice, what are you talking about? And he says, well, there's no way you wrote this paper. And in fact, I did write my my whole paper. I had gone to a college prep high school where we were taught to write correctly. We were taught to speak correctly, but it was so much easier and lazy for me to speak in the, the traditional Cajun accent. Think of the show Swamp People. And that's you know where I grew up. I grew up about 15 minutes from where that movie, that TV show is shot. Yeah, exactly. And anytime you have a show based in America that needs subtitles. You're in trouble. Yeah, I mean, literally, it's that bad. So the professor is telling me that he's going to send me up on charges and the whole thing. And I'm sitting there heartbroken. And I said, well, I did write my paper. And he said to me, he goes, you know, I'm going to be here for the next two hours grading papers. And I want you to sit there and write a, a, a thousand or fifteen hundred word ep, uh, essay on on anything. And I need to read what you're writing, I need to see that you can form a complete sentence. And I said, okay. And he handed me paper and he handed me a pen. And I looked at him and I said, what do you want me to write about? And he said, what was the last movie you saw? And I said, oh, my girlfriend and I went out just last night and we saw E.T. And he said, okay, write about E.T. I said, well, what do you want me to write about E.T.? He goes, whatever you want to. He was so annoyed with me and so ready to have me kicked out of school. So I sat there, and I didn't write 1,000. I didn't write 1,500 words. I wrote 3,000 words and handed it in to him within uh, an hour and a half. And uh, I related E.T. to a biblical story. And I started with when I was walking into, because I didn't know what to expect when I walked in the CET. I started where the poster outside showed ET's hand and a hand of, of a kid touching. And there was a, a bit of light between. And mm. I, I linked it to the Sistine Chapel. Exactly. And uh, I said right then and there, I, I thought it was going to be a biblical story. And, uh, you know, ET did ascend down from the heavens of sorts. And the, I made the apostles, the kids, the 12 or so kids that protected E.T. And then E.T. had to go home. He ascended into heaven and he rose again. And I wrote that into an essay. And the professor sat there and I saw the look on his face. And when uh, he was done, he shook my hand and said, Mr. Tortorich, uh, I apologize. And, you know, you will never hear from me again. You know, you, you, you know, I can't remember exactly how he apologized now. It's been 30 some odd years. But yeah, 
you know, uh, I'm sure you didn't want your whole run run podcast to be about me and uh, how I learned how to write. But, you know, I did write a best selling book recently, and I guess that's what we were going to talk about anyway. Yeah, you know what? I think you probably have the same challenge in Hollywood where people are looking at you and going, you know, who's this Rube? Who's this Goomba? And, uh, and you're, you know, you're a smart guy, right? I mean, it pro- I guess that could be an advantage in situations. Well, you know, it, you know, I was kind of like Jethro with a tan when I got here. Um, and, and, you know, I did, I, I still deal with that sort of thing. And it's only recently, you know, my clients have always known me to be this kind of smart intellectual guy because, you know, I'll quote certain literature and I'll quote certain things. And I, I am somewhat worldly because I've traveled the world. Um, and I do have an education. Um, so I, I never sit around and try to prove that I'm smart. And even when Dean and I wrote this book, people were like, well, Dean wrote your book. And how, how did he get it to sound like you? And I said, yeah, well, it sounds yeah. like me because I wrote the book. Dean, <laughs> Dean more or less edited the book. Yeah, no, you you just handed him like crayon drawings, right? And, and he wrote the book, oh, right? People really think that. You know, <laughs> before we wrote one single word, I I handed him 40,000 plus words in notes. Most books are not 40,000 words nowadays. Yeah, I've written a couple of books as well um, because I, I love to write. But um, let's let's talk about your book. It came out just earlier this year, right? And, you, and you're saying it's doing well. You self-published. So you get to keep all the money? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, it is self-published. It came out on July 2nd. It's an Amazon bestseller. The, the book is still, uh, you know, like a top 15 or 20 book. There are crazy numbers around the book. Um, I, I, I was published once before through a publisher, and Dean had been published six times before through a publisher. And when we gave this book to my agent and his agent, uh, he's with William Morris. He's a big-time uh writer, producer for television and movies. So both of our agents had it and they all went out, you know, one agent took the lead. They went to the top 22 publishers in the world and we got a lot of feedback. And as you know, from, you know, when publishers give you feedback, they want you, they want to buy the book, but they want you to change it. Right. They wanted us to change it so much that it wouldn't have looked like my book anymore. And I said, you know, this book is about how the fitness industry is screwing everyone. And now you're telling me to do the same thing. And they, you know, there was, well, look, you can either take our big advance up front or not. And I chose not to. And Dean was on board with that. He was like, I don't care what you do. You know, it's, you know, he's not hurting for money. And, you know, neither of us are are dying to, to make a buck off of people by lying to them. Right. Um, I I really like the new publishing model because it removes that whole thing about having to ask permission from some jerk off publisher. Yeah. You know, and and the result is you get a lot of bad self-published books. But, you know, at least they're honest. They're authentic. You know, you're right about that. Um, And, you know, our book came out. Uh, We we didn't think anyone was going to buy it. We just thought we had committed literary suicide. And on day one, uh, you know about the Kindle ranking, right? I mean, the Kindle ranking, you know, every book company wants their books to be in the top 10,000. Out of all the millions of books, if your title is in the top 10,000, you're winning the game. And my book on the first day went to book number 400 of all books on Kindle. Mm -hmm. And it stayed in the top 700 for the first month or maybe five weeks. 
And then it started to creep a bit. But we, we've never left the top 10,000, and we've been out since July 2nd. And we've made probably double the amount of money we would have made with advances and everything else. And think about that, Chris. I've not been on the talk, the view, the chew. I haven't been on Dr. Oz. I haven't been on Oprah. This is all done by the Angriest Trainer podcast and the Ravenous fans causing a groundswell. Yeah. You know, the book has been, it's been reviewed over 435 times on, uh, on Amazon and it's got virtually a five star review. I think it's like 4.7 or 4.8, which keeps it one of the top selling books. So I did read your book, right? Yeah. Um, you got, you guys sent me a copy and I, and I read through it. And like you said, it's actually, it's like two books. It's like two or three books, actually. The, you know, you have the, the sort of hero's journey where you, where you beat cancer and do the, the 508, the Furnace Creek, right? Right. Um, and so that's the, you know, uh, here's our hero. He starts from nothing. He has challenges and he wins. You know, that's a great story in itself. And then you have sort of the, the angriest trainer rant part of it where you beat up on the, the health clubs and the fitness industry in general. Yeah. You know, and that's what the, you know, two of the book companies that wanted to sign us to big deals, <clears throat> they wanted a two book deal. They wanted us to go back and, and do the cancer story and the 508 story together as one entity. And they wanted me to do a prescriptive as a separate book. And both of those companies as two of the bigger publishers wanted that model. You know, that's what they wanted. And we said, no, we turned down a two book deal from two big publishers. And as you know, from publishing your own books, when you have two companies fighting over your book, the numbers can get bigger and bigger if you start entertaining that. Um, yeah. And my agent thought that I lost my mind. Well, yeah, because they just want to get paid. Yeah. But, you know, she's actually making money on the book now because the book is being sold into foreign rights. Yeah, and the difference with, um, you know, self-publish, and even if you go through Amazon to publish, you know, if you've got a, let's say it's a $20 book, right? Right. The difference is, if you self-publish, you're making 18 bucks on that book. If you go through a publishing house, they're making 18 bucks on that book. Your numbers are off a little bit, but not much. Right. You know, um, but you get no advertising because I started saying to myself, what are these book companies going to offer me that uh, I can't do on my own? And they kept saying, well, you'll be in Barnes and Noble. And I said to them, oh, you mean the place that's going to probably be closed before this book comes out? <laughs> that's that's what I get from you guys. And uh, they've come back to me since then. They're still trying to get the book. Now that they yeah. really want the book, and it's like, well, you know what? I'm making, you know, 75% on each book. Uh, let me think about that for a while. Right. Yeah. No, it's a good model. I like it. I, I like the fact that you don't have to ask permission anymore. I think that's great. And it opens up the door for a lot of interesting stuff that probably otherwise wouldn't see the light of day. Yeah. And, you know, some other really cool stuff is coming out. By the time this podcast comes out, it'll be all over the Internet. I just got invited, you know, yesterday, a lot of cool things. I've been invited to speak a lot now. And I just spoke at the Good Samaritan Hospital at a heart healthy conference. I was the only non-doctor on, on the docket. And uh, I just posted that video. Uh, it's going to be embedded in this in my first show this week, which is coming out tomorrow. That's Monday, whatever the date is. Um, yeah. 
But that's going to be on uh, my Vimeo. It's going to be on my YouTube channel. So other people can see the, the, the kind of stuff I'm doing around that now. Yeah, I travel a lot, right? And you're right. You walk through the airports or on airplanes, and everybody's fat, you know? There's just no way around it, right? Yeah. Yeah, It's a, and and it's really not their their fault. You know, we've been duped into becoming fat, and that's a problem. You know, people don't wake up in the morning, Chris, and say, you know, I, I want to be fat. You know, I'm I'm happy being 50 pounds overweight or 100 pounds overweight or 200 pounds overweight. And the, the problem is not going to go away. You know, we have the first lady going, oh, drink an extra glass of water because they can't let the first lady tell the truth, which is we have sucrose and fructose in everything we eat now. Yeah, it's at the basic ingredient level. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a capitalist. I believe in the free market system. My, in my real job, you know, my customers are these companies you're talking about. And they're they're working off the the profit motive, yeah. But they're also working off the cost motive. And what happened was they've just gotten they've engineered uh, the lowest cost ingredients in. And like you said, the lowest cost ingredient is the stuff that the government funds, which is the corn. And you know, it's they're not being evil. They're just you know they're just doing what they're being rewarded to do. Well, when you think about it, back when I was in college, back when I was a kid. You and I are the same age, Vinny. Are you, are you 51? I'm, I'm going to be 51 this week. Oh, congratulations. We both made it. Half yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? I, I was, <laughs> hell, I almost didn't make it past my 46th birthday. Yeah. Think about it. What, what, did, what did a taco at Taco, Bell, at Taco Bell cost back when you were 18 years old? Do you remember? No, I don't. It was 99 cents. Remember, they had the 99-cent taco deal. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what a taco could cost a day at Taco Bell? Ninety-nine cents. Sixty-nine cents. So yeah. uh, let's go back. What did you pay for Levi jeans back in 1981? I don't know, fifteen bucks. Tops, twelve to fifteen bucks. Those same jeans today will cost you forty-five to sixty bucks. Okay. Yeah. I'll, let me let me tell you my story about jeans. Right. You know, I'm your age, so I went to every year. You know, you buy a pair of jeans or you buy underwear, right? Right. So I went to that that big store that I won't name and bought some new underwear, and they're freaking huge. And I'm looking at them going, did I buy the wrong size? You know, did did I shrink? What happened? They've changed all the sizes. Yeah, they do that it's to make people cool. feel better about themselves. My my, you know, it's like wearing a diaper. And uh, same thing with the jeans. I look like the uh, the after picture and the before and after ad. You know, there's so much extra material in them. Yeah, it's crazy. They have to make everything bigger. You know, like a size 6 used to be a size 6. Now the size 10 has size 6 written in it for women. I mean, it's crazy. It's it's that nuts. Yeah, so they're just they're sort of adjusting the adjusting the machine on us. But it's fairly recent cuz I'll t- I was telling you before I watched stuff on Netflix on the trainer. Yeah. And I was watching old Star Trek, the first, you know, the first Star Trek series. Sure. And you look at the people in that show and they're all like 125, 130 pounds, sure. all the guys. Yeah. Even the guys who are like the security guys are 140 pounds, yeah. right? There's none of this that you see today. So it's it's a fairly recent occurrence. And I do think it's a lot of it's cultural, but a lot of it's structural as well. So I don't know how to fix it, but hopefully we can we can uh, 
the next generation can figure it out. Well, you know, we're not going to fix it. It's just going to get worse because unless we go off of this sugar grain thing that we're on. I mean, look, when I was a kid, Hoss Cartwright was considered a big, giant guy. He would be considered thin. The other thing I heard you talking about with um, with Rich Roll was the, uh, you know, the diet companies like the Weight Watchers and the Nutrisystems. Yeah. And I wanted to give you uh, give you a tip on these guys. You know, you say they don't care about you. It's all a business. Yeah. If you want to really understand that, listen to their earning call sometime, right? So they're public companies. Right. So every quarter they have to do an earnings call where the CEO gets on and they talk about stuff. Yeah. And they don't talk about how they're helping people, right? They talk about, well, you know, we're going to launch it for 10 bucks a month. We're going to do it for 9 bucks a month right there. It's it's all about how they're gaming the uh the market like you talked about in your book. Yeah. Yeah, they they can care less about you. As a matter of fact, on my show, on the Angriest Trainer podcast, we had a girl that works for Weight Watchers who we actually converted, and she left her job uh, after she talked to us on the show because she lost all the weight she could on Weight Watchers, and then she started working for them, and they had her, they wanted her to starve herself to death to keep thin, or she would lose her job. She started doing my whole no sugars, no grains thing, to, to stay down and realize that that was the right way to eat. And she couldn't go lie to people anymore, so she quit her job. Right. And and what you're talking about is not Atkins, right? If you know, People hear that and they think, oh, here's Vinny. He's got a stick of butter in one hand he's chewing on and a fistful of bacon in the other. And it's, you know, that's what he's doing. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about eating whole food, good food, and just getting off the crap, the processed crap. I, I often say that if someone walked into my house, they would swear that it was a, house, a, a vegan house. Uh, we eat more fruit and vegetable than anything. Um, and, you know, when, when U.S. News and World Report did a thing on me a couple of, about a month ago, they said, it, you know, you don't talk about diet. You only talk about lifestyle. But if you had to align yourself with a diet, what would it be? And the closest thing that I could come up with is the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Except without all the extra grain that they throw into that diet. Yeah. Um, I believe in a lot of vegetables, a lot of leafy greens, a lot of phytonutrients, beef, pork, chicken, and fish. It's the right. way you and, should eat. And the other thing is there's really no shortcut, and you got to do the exercise. I mean, just the little bit I've been listening to, I know you're a worker, and you're doing the work, right? Nobody, you didn't get to where you were by you know by just showing up or having a magic genetic uh, makeup, you got there by doing the work. And I think that's what people miss a lot. Yeah, you know, they always say, well, you're a world-class athlete. I hear that a lot, which I'm not, by the way. But I played college football, and my younger brother, who has exactly my frame, uh, was also a good athlete. He got recruited to play college ball, but decided not to. And he looked more like the statue of David than I did back in the day. And I can tell you, that he now weighs 365 pounds, and I weigh 168 pounds. So there's a 200-pound difference between the two of us. So mm. I don't want to hear about genetics playing a role in it. You can you can do whatever you want through diet. Yep. It's all it's all part of the same package. You know, how was so. you know, just like you said, how could everyone back in the days of, of uh of Star Trek be all thin? And have those genetics. Why did all the genetics change? Genetics didn't change. The diet changed. Yep. And, uh, and a lot less, uh, a lot less exercise too, you know? I think people just gotta, 
got to get out and get moving, but that's not going to do it. You got to work on the diet as well. Sure. So the other thing I was wondering, because you were a big weightlifter when you started out, being a ball player, you guys yeah. all hit the iron all the time. Absolutely. Do you still do you still do that with your with your clients? <clears throat> I do. I, I incorporate some weightlifting in. I'm not in the game of making people all bulky and big. Every now and then I'll get a housewife who wants to have a ripped stomach, a look that I don't particularly care for. Um, but that that will happen from time to time. Uh, kind of not my thing. Um, but yeah, I, I have people because I work with a lot of people who just want to look a certain way. And the other group I have are triathletes and runners and cyclists. I also incorporate some weightlifting in that. Right. But it's not bulk stuff. It's, it's body weight training and, and light dumbbells, high reps, right? So lean muscle stuff. Uh, actually it's uh lean muscle stuff, but I do, uh, I use, I work big to small, you know, um, uh, big muscle groups. And I do simple movements, uh, squats, lunges, leg press, uh, bench press or, or push-ups and, uh, then some pulls. And that's about it because that covers your whole body. Right. And you don't have to do it yeah. to bulk up. You could do it to slim down. Yeah. I mean, if you, you can do like what I do, you know, I, I do a, a core workout that covers all the muscle groups and I can do three sets in under an hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No right. one should take more than 40, 45 minutes to do the whole thing. And twice a week is more than enough for what I'm uh, prescribing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, the book, give us the, the book and the links and I'll let you get to your next appointment because you still got a couple more to do today, right? I'm literally going to meet with uh, my co-writer, Dean Laurie, uh, the man who's now running Hollywood, <laughs> um, because he needs more copies of the book. Um, you know, he, he's running the hottest show in Hollywood right now. Um, he, he's the, the, the producer of the show, The Crazy Ones with Robin Williams and, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. And, um, huh. right before I started doing the podcast today, like five hours ago, six hours ago, he called me and said, I need to come over tonight. We need, to, I need more books. Um, and then he sent me a picture of Adriana Lima hugging him, which kind of pisses me off. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you want the goods on the book. The book is Fitness Confidential. You can find that book at, uh, on Amazon. You can find it anywhere books are sold. You can find it on iTunes. The Kindle copy is there. The, the hard copy is there. Uh, the book is also out in Audible. You can buy that at Amazon. You can get that, uh, anywhere Audible is sold. Uh, we put that out two or three months after the book and that thing is flying off the shelf. Uh, oh, that's good. You, so you get the, uh, are you reading it? I do read it. You do get an advantage over the book. People who bought the book went back and bought the uh, audio because um, there's some material that we left out of the book that I jammed into the Audible. Uh, there's also, I, as you know, I go off the page a lot on my podcast. <laughs> and I did that in the book. Every word that's in the book is in the Audible, plus I go off the page on that. And talk about yeah. it. And then at the end, uh, Dean Laurie comes in and he and I are in the booth chugging the same mic the way Sonny and Cher used to do it when they sang I Got You, Babe, at the end of the Sonny and Cher hour uh, with Chastity Bono in their arms. And uh, our Chaz Bono, as she's known. See, now now you're showing your age. Yeah. And we, we got in there and we did 15 minutes at the end talking about how we put the book together. So anyone who's interested in even learning or writing a book might want to go for that audible copy. Um, 
but a lot of people are buying both. Um, and right now, there's actually a deal. If you buy uh, the hard copy of the book, we, we, you can get a second copy, a Kindle copy for two ninety nine. That's seventy percent off of the price. The podcast is called the Angriest Trainer Podcast. As you can tell, I'm not an angry guy. I'm angry because your good intentions have been stolen. Um, so you may want want to go listen to that if, if uh, you get tired of listening to Chris or if you need a second podcast to go to. Yeah, for those people who, who aren't already listening to you. <laughs> All right, what's the, what's the website? The website is vinnytortorich.com. The YouTube channel is Vinny Tortorich YouTube. And there's a Vinny Tortorich Vimeo now that you'll probably find because some of my speeches are getting longer and YouTube doesn't like the longer speeches. But I'm going to figure out a way to jimmy them onto YouTube also. Mm. Okay. All right, man. I'll let you go. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, appreciate it. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Tapering for a marathon. What to do? We've talked about this topic many times over the years. Let's cover a refresher on the do's and don'ts of tapering for a marathon. You can certainly taper for other distances, but the marathon is what I'm most familiar with, having just crossed the finish line of my 39th last weekend. The taper is an interestingly combative topic at times. If you do it right and you've done your training, you can walk into the race like a coiled spring ready to explode. If you do it wrong, you can walk into the race with dead legs or feeling sluggish. The whole point of a structured marathon training cycle is to have you peak at the right time. Training is the process of stressing the body and then letting it recover. As you go through the weeks of a marathon plan, you will go through three to six cycles of stress and recovery. It depends on how long the program is that you're using. Typically, there are three-week cycles that progress easy, medium, hard over each cycle. Subsequent cycles peak at higher levels of intensity and volume, even with the Galloway programs. They're set up like this. They just do it much more gradually and over a longer training plan. The final cycle of your plan will peak two to three weeks before your target race. And this will be marked by your longest long run. And then you will begin to slide into the taper. How long should the taper be? Well, most coaches will use a two to three week taper period. I have heard of four weeks, and I have personally used one week when I was younger. It really depends on your age and fitness and how well you trained. The bottom line is that if you have only trained marginally, a perfect taper won't save you. If you have trained very well, a poor taper probably won't hurt you that much. If your training is just right, like the little bear's porridge, then you'll want to have a good taper to complement that training. Let's take a three-week taper as an example. The first week of the taper would be right after your longest long run and start about 20 days before your target race date. This first week, you're not going to change much. You're just going to lower the volume. For me, I run two hard workouts a week. 
and also a long run. In there, I might also have one or two recovery runs or a spin or some stretching or whatever. For example, if you had peaked with a hour and a half tempo run and a 10 rep hill workout, I'm just making this up, you might do a one hour tempo run and a set of six to eight hill reps or mix in a fartlek run for one of your hard workouts. So the basic schedule is going to look the same, the same pattern, but with about 60 to 80% of the load in that first week. And the first week of tempo ends two weeks before the race, and then your next long run will be 13 to 15 miles typically, with some of it at race pace, or maybe a closing the last few miles at race pace minus 5 or 10 seconds per mile. The second week of the taper, again, we're assuming a three-week taper here, the second week of the taper is going to be basically the same thing. The same workout pattern, but again, drop the intensity and volume by another 20 to 40% or so and start working in some focused stretching. Maybe a 40-minute tempo and a shorter fartlek run. You might also start replacing some of your recovery runs and spins with rest days or shorter runs combined with stretching. So you're really, you're bringing that volume down, but you're still working out. At the end of the second week of taper, you will do your last long run, and it will be in the 10 to 13 mile range, maybe with a fast finish or a couple of pickups. This is the weekend that I like to schedule a good massage. I have my massage therapist work on any achy bits, and help me do some deep stretching. And this gives me time to flush out any junk stirred up by the massage before race day. I'll also do any foot care that needs to be done, cutting my nails short. So that way, in case I screw up, it has a week to heal. And the last week before the race, you won't have any serious tempo work. For me, it might be something like a rest day on Monday with some stretching, Tuesday a 30 to 40 minute fartlek run, Wednesday a rest day with some stretching, Thursday a short easy run, Friday a couple of miles with a handful of pickups, Saturday you're typically at the expo, and I usually take that as a rest day, and I go for a walk with the dog, just to burn off some nervous energy. If it's a course I'm unfamiliar with, I might go out and jog the last mile into the finish to learn the landmarks. The key objective in your taper is to keep your legs awake, but not to stress them. All the work has been done, and there is no way to cram for a race by loading in extra miles at the last minute. If you load in extra miles or extra intensity, you can show up with dead legs. The counterpoint to this is that you can't just stop running in your taper. If you do that, you'll feel sluggish in the race. So the trick is to find that right balance of activity and rest that will allow you to show up with that spring, that compressed spring ready to bounce. The specific number of workouts, the form of those workouts, the duration and intensity will be determined by the training plan that you executed leading up to the taper. The taper will end up being a toned-down version of that with the same pattern. So enjoy your tapers, and I'll see you out there. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises 
to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Alrighty, my friends, that was episode 3-276. By the way, I was on Vinny's show, too, his podcast. Podcasting is making a resurgence. It's becoming a way for people to create and market their online brands. And most of these folks are doing talk show-type formats and pushing out two, three, four, five shows a week. And the end game is to build a brand and an audience so they can build a business around it. So good for them. Nothing wrong with a little capitalism. Next up for me is a trail marathon outside of Bloomington, Indiana. My sisters live in Indy, so we're going to make a little adventure out of it. And when I get a chance, I'll write up my Fort Myers race report for you. It had some interesting bits. Not sure what I can learn from it other than sometimes you don't have a good day. But that's eight marathons in eight months. Um, in negotiations with a friend of mine to see if we can pull off an adventure to Waco, Texas for a marathon at the end of January. That would give me a bigger gap to get a decent cycle in and would be my last chance to qualify to adjust my seating in this year's Boston. So we'll see. Have a great week. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao.